Welcome to Geared for Growth. I'm your host, Mike Mortlock, Managing Director of MCG Quantity Surveyors and Tax Depreciation Nerd. Today, I've got Jim Vass, who is an expert property investor himself, but also an accountant and financial planner. He's from ATB Chartered Accountants and Business Mentors. And we have a chat to him as almost the man behind the tax return. He works with a lot of property investors and is able to see what property investors are doing well, areas that he wishes that they'd spoken to him before they make decisions. And we talk about some of the key things that property investors get bewitched by. That's either tax savings or brand new properties. And also about not thinking necessarily about the exit strategy of converting their portfolio into that income stream in retirement. It's an awesome interview with Jim and I'm sure you'll get a lot out of it. Here's Jim. Jim Vass, thanks for joining me on Geared for Growth. Thanks, Mike. Pleasure to be here. Now, this is the first time on the show, and I think we need to get another episode uh, in the future to go much more into your background. But I I wanted to to invite you into this um, sort of special series where we're talking about the property investing journey from start to finish, where we're you know we're starting with saving for a deposit or or using equity. But I I wanted to get you in at, at this point where we're sort of you know around the point of of purchasing a property because there's a lot of mistakes that you see um, as an accountant working with property investors, um, being a successful investor yourself, where it would have been nice to grab someone at that point when they're starting to purchase their portfolio and maybe give them a shake and say, wait a minute, have you thought about all of this properly, right? Yeah, yeah. Look, you, 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 if you hang around long enough in the industry, you're going to see uh, quite a, a variety of the errors and they start right at the very, very beginning, just even at the getting the finance organised for something mm. where they actually haven't structured their finance correctly or people seem to be under a misconception that uh, um, if <clears throat> if they finance and pay off their home loan, okay, uh, then they're going to be able to somehow make their home loan tax deductible. So it's 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 one of those things that structuring is fairly important right up front. And it's always mindful to the, the golden rule here is what is the purpose of your borrowings? Yes. So if you're actually borrowing that money to buy an investment property, then that's what the purpose of the borrowings is, is to buy an investment property, not borrow $300,000 to pay off your home loan and then take, take the deposit out and then um, take the deposit out of that and then borrow it uh, uh, again to uh, do anything else with it. It, it seems like those sorts of decisions, are, are people trying to find little hacks to to avoid the pain of tax, right? Like you, you being an accountant, you will know that the pain of tax is so palpable that investors will come to you and say, I need to buy an investment property because I'm paying too much tax. Yeah. How much is that fear of tax, which is, I guess tax is another, another word for success, right? Because if you're paying tax, you've done something right, but it motivates people to try and avoid it, right? Yeah, look, the the thing is, though, any investment that the primary motive is reducing your tax liability is probably going to be flawed from the beginning because it's not – it shouldn't be the sole driving purpose of actually investing, mm. okay? Because you could invest in something that's so bad that it's going to be vacant for 50% of the time. Um, and, yeah, that's going to give you a huge tax deduction, but it's yeah. also going to give you a huge headache. Yes. I always say, if somebody's after a huge tax deduction, tell me. I'll bill them more and then they've got it as much as a tax deduction <laughs> as they want. But that doesn't, that doesn't make sense from 
a, the perspective of you're spending money. So if you're going to be spending money and effort, you've actually got to put it into something that whilst tax may be a consideration, it can't be the only driving factor for it. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's the weird weird thing when people sort of say, I want to buy a property because uh, I'm paying too much tax. Yeah. You, it sort of begs the question, well, you know, like – do you want to buy something that's going to grow or is mm. going to pay for itself? Have you thought more about it or is it yeah. just like taxes the devil? I don't want Australia buying any more dodgy submarines. Yeah, because the thing is as well, if you're going to go down that route as well to you've got to make sure that if, you, if you're going to be buying something in order for a tax, a, a tax benefit, there's going to be two things that you're going to be looking for is how much can I claim on depreciation because that's one of the things that I'm not going to be spending money on. Like I don't actually have to spend – a dollar to get a dollar's worth of depreciation in my tax return. Yes. Okay. And secondly is what's the capital growth going to be? Because certainly if you're buying it to, to be negatively geared in order to provide you with a tax benefit, then you've got to be expecting to see some substantial capital growth. Now it's pointless buying a property where the, the rental yield is fairly low, but the capital growth is low as well, mm. because all, that, all you've done is just tied up your resources in an asset that is not actually going to grow and you're not going to be able to leverage that. Sure, you're getting a great tax deduction for the next 10 or 15 years, but that's about as far as it's going to go. Do you see that as being one of the reasons why the average investor only owns one property is because they sort of tie themselves up and in that yeah. situation you would be sort of decimating your borrowing capacity, I assume? And it's also not a positive experience for that person either, so they're li- less likely to do it again. So if you, you, know, you you look at a scenario where somebody's purchased in a block of 200 and they've purchased it and, and because there's a block of 200, all 200 of them at completion have come up for lease, uh, he's got to compete for a tenant, the rental's low, there's a bunch of these units coming up all over the place, so there's no differentiating factor mm. to that property. So, sure, you're going to get a good depreciation rate. Uh, your rental returns not going to be that fantastic because there's so much other competition in that area and new competition being coming into the area that the rent's not going to be that fantastic. Mm. And then your capital growth's not going to be fantastic either. So it's simply a matter. You've got a great great tax deduction for the next 10 years, but typically on an investment like that, it's probably going to be about 10 years before you see any any dis- real worthwhile capital growth to come out of that investment. Mm. Or alternatively, you could sort of say, well, I'll buy something that's going to provide me with not so much a fantastic return, but it's going to be in an area that's in demand. It's something that you can put a fence around, i.e. a house. Yep. Um, so it's, we always say that land appreciates, buildings depreciate. So it's the land content really that appreciates mm. on anything in that area. And if you've, if you've got an investor that's gone into something like that, well, then the likelihood is they're going to see in the next, in the first year or two years, they're going to see some growth in equity, which will enable them to, again, be able to gear to be able to purchase a property, mm. purchase, you know, keep on building that portfolio. We, we published some data on uh, a thousand transactions, residential transactions a couple of years ago, and we actually found that the average um, People, or the percentage of people purchasing new property was forty nine point five percent, and a big a big component of that was was units, and you know that sort of fairly well um, sits into what you were saying. I mean, the the average 
number of uh, dwellings in a unit complex we saw um, fluctuate between the 70 and the 90. But even if it's not 200, right, there's there's still that lack of scarcity and there's la- there's that lack of um, land to value ratio. What? Why do you think? those properties are so often sought by property investors? Is it the depreciation deductions being sold? Is it the fact that it's new? Or is it just the fact that that's where the spruikers tend to live? I think it's a combination of all. Look, if, if, if you don't know any better, that's where you're probably going to land because you're going to be saying, hey, it's new, so therefore I'm going to have less problems with it. Mm. And they'll you like you know, it's 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 very easy to sell advantages of anything, right? So you look at a property that's in the uh, an apartment that's in a block of seventy. Well, it's going to be a matter of you, the the plus side is going to be what's well, a new apartment. Um, the maintenance is going to be minimal uh, because it's new. It's going to be easier to let. It's going to be in demand for for, for rental. Uh, you're going to get substantial depreciation um, to it, yeah. and it's really what you can afford as opposed to house in the equivalent area so and typically from what i've seen between a unit and a house in that comparable area it's not significantly if you're going to actually look at uh weighing up what you get bang for buck for one to the other you'd be looking at probably a house would certainly be more worthwhile as far as bang for buck goes yeah it's simply a matter of that additional extra uh, amount of funding that's required it, it, it takes people outside of um, what their ability to, to afford, so therefore they buy what they can afford. Yeah, that's an interesting point because the price point for units, certainly in the capital cities, like a house versus a unit in most suburbs uh, within 10Ks of the CBD of Melbourne, Sydney, is, is just unaffordable for your average property investor, right? So they're either forced to go the unit route or they're forced to go sort of more into those regional areas is is that where you see some opportunity for some good buying in the in the next little while potentially in the regional well regional has has been one of those areas that's gone up and down and it's purchasing in a regional area for good reasons again so you've got to actually look at it as to what is the the industry within the area regional new south wales in particular i know has changed drastically over the last 10, 15 years. Yep. And it's actually continuing to become more and more popular with the de- decentralisation of uh, the workforce. Yeah, The workforce don't feel like there's a need to actually be in the office. So a lot of them are actually sort of saying, all right, well, why would I want to live in a, a two-bedroom apartment in the inner city where I can move out to, to Orange or Bathurst or something like that where mm. you're still in a reasonable regional centre and you've got probably the equivalent of what you could sell your two-bedroom apartment for, you've bought yourself a house on a quarter-acre block. Yeah. Okay, so it it really comes down to lifestyle. But typically when you're looking at regional areas, you've got to look at what industry is around the area to support it. And certainly when you're going for larger regional areas, it's probably not a bad thing. But then I've heard a lot of disaster stories where uh, people have gone into areas that that were during the mining boom Mm -hmm. and the mines have closed down and... The, the property is half of what it, it was worth. They purchased property on a, a 7 to 8, 9% yield and it's half of the valuation. There's borrowings against those properties that wouldn't even stack up against the OVR for that property. Mm. And uh, they're pretty much stuck there. They can't refinance, they can't sell. And all I can do is hope to rent it for something which is in a, in a town that's not really attracting people that want to live there. Yeah, and, the, and I suppose in interviewing some of the best and the brightest in Australia, most of the people that I've spoken to have said 
that's that's too risky for me. I'm not clever enough to pick the timing. And you can't. It begs the question: Well, if if they've spent their whole career trying to do it and they don't want to touch it, there's there's something in it for us, right? Yeah. Well, it's it, it is. It's with with any investment, and this goes if it's property, if it's equities, whatever. It's always there's an adage that goes: It's not timing the market; it's time in the market. Yes. Okay, so. You can certainly the, – the time is not so critical. Like, say, for instance, now the Sydney, Sydney property market's going through a boom, okay? Logic would say that you buy, if you're buying now, you're buying at, an, at a premium rate. So, therefore, if you're buying with the expectancy that you're going to be selling it in 6 to 12 months to make some money, well, that's really quite sort of a brave move to make. Yeah, but if you're going to sort of say, look, I'm buying in the market now, and sure, I might be buying in the market and it's expensive, but my intention is not to flick this property. It's to actually hold it for the long term. And in the long term, over the next 10 or 15 years, the likelihood is that this property is going to appreciate in value. Yeah. And of course, it's going to be really dependent upon the 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 suburb that you've picked, the type of property that you've picked. So it's got to have, it's got to have the right... Um, uh, appeal to a property investor to do it. So it's not go and buy anything and it should be fine. You've got to know which areas you're going to be buying for. You've got to know what's what's the infrastructure in the area, what's planned for the area, um, anything that's going to be detrimental to that area as well in order to be able to, to gauge what where you're going to be going and what you're going to buy. But it's a long-term game. It's not – I don't know anybody that goes into a prop building a property portfolio to say everything's tick and flick. It's yeah. going to be simply a matter of – you're acquiring to to let that asset build so you can leverage it. Yep. Okay. Yeah, and it's what probably one of the only assets that you can actually leverage mm. with 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 a decent rate. You you can't if you're going to be looking at leveraging shares and stuff like that. Well, that's an incredibly a the interest rates are ridiculously high. Plus the risk associated and the volatility associated and the calls that could be made. You wouldn't be doing it. Well, yeah. you certainly would be very, very brave to do that. So it's simply a matter when you're looking at property. Property is really one of the only asset classes you're going to be saying, "All right, well, it's something that you can leverage multiple times in order to build a portfolio." Yeah, leverage and compound growth were the Buffett's yeah. sort of wonders of yeah. the world. We've talked about some of the things that I think people get bewitched by as an investor. That might be, you know, tax savings or it might be shiny new uh, apartments that are strictly advertised. But as an accountant, you would see uh, people getting excited about, you know, structuring and things like that, right? Where they might go, okay, well, I've got a business and a family trust, so, you know, I can direct some some dividends this way and that's the best way to, to, to purchase the property in there because I'll be protected if anything happens. But people often rush into those structures not really understanding how that serves their property investing journey, from my understanding. Mm. Is that something that you come across a lot as an accountant? Yeah, yeah. Look, the Give for Growth Property Investing Podcast is presented by our business, MCG Quantity Surveyors. If you're an investor or a property professional looking to get the best tax depreciation deductions for yourself or your clients, please get in touch with us at mcgqs.com.au. It's our mission to help as many property investors as we can to maximize their claims and maximize their property education as well. What I'd probably run across more is that people have heard about trusts and they say, hey, look, I would like to buy property in trusts. Yeah. Okay. But they're, 
they're really not aware of probably one of the biggest things and, 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 and the most expensive factors. If you purchase a property, and we'll, let's just keep our conversation for New South Wales, yep. given the fact that it's what I know best. If we purchase a property in New South Wales, this is your first property, first do- your first delving into um, your, your first property purchase. Now, you might be fortunate enough that you say, all right, look, I've got the money and I want to buy it at a trust because I've got a few big things happening and I've really got to protect my assets and the rest of it. You've also got to be aware, though, that if you purchase it in a trust, you're going to not have any land tax threshold exemption. Yep. So effectively, you've got to factor in that you're going to be giving our lovely state government a good slab of your rent for land tax. Yeah. As opposed to if it was purchased individually, um, that land tax would not exist. Mm. There's, there's, there's issues. So there's so many different ways of actually structuring it. And I always say to a client when, when they've actually had the opportunity to talk to me before they commit to doing anything, you've got to be looking at how do you structure it? So you'd be looking at, is it going to be in your name? Would it be in your spouse's name? If your children are older, would it be in their name? Would it be in a family trust? Should it be in a company? And that's all really going to be dependent upon what is the plan for that property. So if this property is going to be sort of a a high yielding, low capital growth, well, you might be saying, well, this this is being purchased specifically to be able to just provide us with cash flow. And if you're the main breadwinner in the family, but your um, your wife's not, well, that's going to be a positively geared property. So it doesn't make sense to put it in the main breadwinner's name because they're just going to be paying tax where they shouldn't be. Yeah. Okay. Um, then there's looking at how many properties they've got in their portfolio uh, and to determine how you're going to structure it in, in sort of like you might get to a point where land tax is an issue where you're going to have to try to work around to say, well, what do we need to do in order to try to get around this land tax? And there's going to have to be some sort of, um, I suppose, concessions where you're going to be saying, all right, look, I might be missing out on some of the capital gains tax exemptions, but I'm going to be saving X amount of land tax over the next 20 years and the company tax rate is still going to be at 30% or whatever it is. So you've got to factor all of that, but it's horses for courses. And the most important thing is to actually speak to somebody and discuss what your intentions are and what the longer term strategy is for your property, (coughs) excuse me, for the property portfolio in order to make sure that you're doing things as appropriate for that specific property and what your circumstances are for that time, Mm. at that time. Yeah, that's absolutely great advice. I I couldn't agree more with that. I'm interested also um, I guess in the mindset of the property investor, the goal is is more, bigger, better, you know, the 10 properties in 10 years and all those things we hear about. There's a, there's a general sort of idea that the more properties, uh, the better. But I, I think for most people getting into property investing, it's about wealth creation and, and you know, collecting freedom tickets so they can decide to, to choose the life they want. And there's a few things that I think people um, – they, they don't value as much as they should like super contributions and the, and the tax-free status, the, the, the CGT-free status of their, their personal homes. Are there any other things that sort of spring to mind to you where you know, property investors get sort of bewitched by the portfolio growth and don't yeah. see the other things? Look, I have this conversation quite a lot because we, like, uh, I'm an accountant. I've been an accountant for 30-odd years. Uh, also, our firm does financial planning. And a lot of the times I'll get clients uh, referred to me, they've already got a property portfolio. They've got two or three properties and their intention is just saying, look, I want to buy another one or two properties. 
But when we actually sit down, you, you have a look at trying to identify what the client's goal is. Very early in the piece, I've actually got to try to clarify what is important to them. So, Mike, if you said to me, Jim, I'd like to retire in 10 years' time or 15 years' time on an income of $150,000, okay, the question to you would be, well, is it more important for you that you have 15 properties by that stage, irrelevant of whether you can reach that 150k mark or not? Or is it more important for you to have that $150,000 in income and whether that has three properties in it, four properties in it or whatever, but you've actually reached that goal? Because the unfortunate thing about superannuation or any equities or any investment outside of property is it doesn't have the same uh, emotive appeal. Like you can, it's people get a kick out of saying, hey, I own a property there and there and I can drive past it. I can go into it. Mm. I can go kick the walls if I want. It's simply a matter of that is far more engaging than having a look at a piece of paper with figures on it saying, oh, that's my superannuation balance. Mm, yeah, okay. Exactly. So it's it's fairly important from my perspective to be able to clarify what's important to the person that we're dealing with. Because you can't assume that people are always driven by a dollar. Okay. And you can't always assume like, yeah, it's wrong to assume even that people are driven by a tax deduction. Yeah. It's simply a matter everybody's got their own drivers and you've got to try to figure out what that person's drivers are because if that person driver is to have 10 properties, whether I show him that he's going to be better off without the properties or not, it's not going to make one or other a difference. He yeah. wants 10 properties. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, it's pointless wasting time. You've just got to figure out what they want and if they want the 10 properties, that's their main driver, not the $150,000 retirement income. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I guess there's some people that are just attached to that ego metric of, yeah. you know, I'm I'm a I'm a big investor because I've got X amount. But uh, there's certainly that pervasive idea that you get to a number of properties. Let's say it's six properties or ten properties, then you've kind of made it. But how much do people underestimate the fact? Well, to convert that to say a retired income stream we've got to be selling it down. You know, there's a process to that. Which properties do you sell? You know, how does it work if you've got a super fund going into pension mode? What, what are some of the things that people miss there? Well, the, the biggest thing that's missed is the, the, the uncertainty. So you might spend five years, 10 years accumulating a property portfolio. And you know what? I'm not here to bag property portfolios because they are important, okay? But if that's your only reliance that you're saying, well, I've ignored my superannuation because I've got a pro- property portfolio of 10, I'm personally carrying now a debt of $3 million, $4 million. So in order to be able to mitigate my, my losses, I've actually got to have life insurances, I've got to have total and permanent disability insurance. I've got to have income protection. All of that's getting funded from somewhere. Now, typically, if I've got 10 problem, uh, properties and a 3 to $4 million debt, I might be a bit cash-strapped. Yeah. So I'm going to fund all of those from my superannuation because my employer has to pay those contributions in the superannuation, which is 10% of my wage, mm-hmm. and there's very, very little else for me to contribute into the superannuation. I don't have the cash flow to contribute. So what I've done now is... I've depleted my superannuation. The, super, the insurance company is really happy, but my insurance, my superannuation balance has been going nowhere for the last 10 or 15 years, just funding premiums. Yeah. Um, and now I've got, well, I can't rely on that, which is quite an easy, easy um, calculation to sort of say, look, 
if I had $3 million in a superannuation account, if I retire, just assuming a 5% interest, I've got my $150,000 there. Mm. It's tax-free. It's a tax-free environment. Everything's very straightforward and easy to calculate. Now, if you've got your property portfolio, you might have a, a three, four, five million dollar property portfolio, but then you've got to be saying, all right, so if I sell this, what debt do I need to extinguish? What are the capital gains tax going to be? Then how am I going to fund the capital gains tax? So the likelihood is I'm going to have to sell another property in order to fund the tax, which is going to then again lead to more capital gains tax. So at some point in time, you're going to be saying, I want to be retiring debt-free. So how many of those 10 properties do I have to sell to extinguish all of my debt and pay the slab to the tax office? And then of those remaining properties, what's the rental going to be that I've got to earn before tax and expenses to be left with $150,000 net after expenses? Mm, That's what you've got to try to figure out, which is a hell of a lot harder than saying, what do I need to do to get $3 million in a super? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, and I think that strategy is is something that's a little bit missing. Perhaps investors will think, you know, all right, well, we'll I'll figure that out when I get to my six properties or something. But I guess the purpose of me interviewing you today is is to hope that we can bring that um, bring that forward because the decisions that you can make now can be really amplified by the time you get to that point. Um, Jim, just to just to wrap up because we've um, we've ripped through uh, time with some really good concepts there. If, if there's one or two pieces of advice for property investors that are either beginning or, or continuing their their portfolio growth, what what do you think you'd land on? I'd say that typically, if if people are beginning their their journey. Uh, it's a relatively complex area for those that don't know anything about it. Um, my advice would be to team up with people that know what they're doing. Uh, and that typically involves having a, pro- a good team around you. That involve having a, a good uh, property mentor. Um, probably wouldn't help to have a buyer's agent that will do the homework for you to point out what the, the tricks and the traps that you've got to be looking, looking out for. Certainly very, very important to have a conversation with your accountant and also um, a financial planner because at the end of the day, you're not going into buying a property as a compulsive purchase. You're, there's a reason behind it and the reason is that you want to try to put yourself in a better financial position and you want to have, it's probably going to be the biggest uh, biggest purchase you're going to be making outside of your family home as well. So you really want to make sure that you've got the right advice before you go and put yourself into or spend that much money which is probably going to be, again, biggest purchase outside of your family home. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome advice, uh, Jim, and we'll share your details in the show notes for anyone wanting to get in touch with you. But thank you very much for sharing your your knowledge and your wisdom today. Thanks, Mike. Cheers. Pleasure, Pleasure being here.